you're a test run for it. Bam, we're live. Brilliant. Just like that. Good to see you. Good morning. Brilliant to see you. How are you? I'm awesome. I, uh, your name popped uh, uh, in my phone and text messages uh, from what I, would, I think is a mutual friend now, Dale King, over at Portsmouth uh, CrossFit. Correct. Yeah, Portsmouth is an extraordinary story, not only as a recovery community, um, but as a touchstone um, location in the the worst of the war on drugs, and uh, most recently, the best of the war on drugs. Oh, meaning because Dale's like he there he's doing it. He's doing it, um, but he happened to uh, hail from the one town that's actually getting it right. The one town um, that is lucky enough to host the most effective broadband treatment program for severe veteran opioid addicts I've ever seen. And I've been writing about the war on drugs for 35 years now. I know. I, w- I was kind of tripping on that, how long you've been uh, covering it. Um, to give people some history on you, when I looked over, how many books have you authored? I've written four. And um, are there any other, Paul, will you pronounce your last name for me? Is it Solotaroff? Solotaroff. 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 Are there any other Paul Solotaroffs? I've never met one or seen one in a phone book anywhere. Yeah, wild. Okay, because I was I was looking. I'm like, wow, this guy's had an incredible. Uh, 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 I was gonna say career, but what's a better word for it? Right. Re- repertoire or uh, you just there's just a lot of lot of good stuff you've done, and there's certain topics that you've been covering a long time. Is 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 drugs your forte? Sort of just the um, drug use in America, drug use on planet Earth. It happens to be the thing that I've covered longest, for sure. I have been writing about reporting on the war on drugs for 35 years, or as I prefer to call it, the war on the poor, um, which we've been waging for 50 years, ever since Richard Nixon walked out uh, into the Rose Garden in the White House in June of 73 and launched this woefully misbegotten piece of public policy called the war on drugs. He called it that? That's what he called it? He launched it, um, as I say, in the early 70s um, to create a phony war um, for, at the time, a phony problem. Um, We were not living in a country that was being flooded uh, with overseas product, with narcotics, from Mexico, Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, et cetera, et cetera. And nowadays, of course, from China uh, in the form of fentanyl. Um, And yet, despite the fact that drug use uh, was limited to recreational drug use, was limited to um, the youth community largely, and of course to rock and roll, um, Richard Nixon spun up um, this global crisis that didn't exist uh, and devoted an extraordinary amount of our national treasure 
to standing up the Drug Enforcement Agency, um, to empowering the FBI. Um, hey, to, Paul, sorry, sorry to interrupt. People are in the comments are saying that they're having trouble hearing you. Ah, hmm. Let's see. What's a better way to do this? Shall I go to speakerphone? Yeah, let's try speakerphone. Is, is it currently using the, the mic on, those, on that headset? It is, yeah. Okay, yeah, let's try. Thank you. I appreciate you. I apologize for interrupting. No. That, that was a concise, solid uh, history of the war on drugs. Hang on just a second. Okay. Easy, people. Easy, easy, easy. Everyone settle down. Settle down. I know. He's saying good stuff. Everyone settle down. How's that? Uh, am I any Ooh. clear? Wow. Much better. Thank you. Good. <laughs> I could hear you fine, but I have headphones on. You were talking straight to my brain. Hey, t t I, I want to get something clear. Are, were you saying in 73 that there wasn't the problem, but today there is the problem? Is it still – because – that's the drumbeat that's going today, that the border's open, tons of drugs are coming in, that it's intentional, that it's a sentient organization or being doing it, whether it's to make money or to, you know, kill our youth, that it, it's a, um, it, is it a real problem today? Oh, my God, is it a real problem? Today? Okay, okay. Here. Um, here's the problem. Yeah. We live next door to the world's number one wholesale distributor of narcotics. Okay. Mexico. That Canada. Uh, oh, Mexico. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the flip side of that is that we are far and away the world's number one consumer mm, mm. of narcotics. And so you have a relationship uh, between buyer and seller that is unbreakable, um, that is impossible to interdict in any meaningful way. Uh, because we share an 1,100-mile border um, with enormous gaps, not just above ground, but below ground. So I've written extensively about El Chapo and his genius as a man with a second-grade education who didn't learn to read and write until he was an adult, by which time he was already a billionaire, um, and Chapo's great uh, brainstorm was to, well, he had two. He had an extraordinary eye for patterns. So he figured out at a very young age when he was a lowly driver for the Sinaloa cartel, actually at that point called the Guadalajara cartel or the Federation, he could get loads across the border where nobody else ever dreamt there was a passage. And so he very quickly rose to power um, as a logistics guy and a ruthless logistics guy. Chapo has killed tens and tens of thousands of people. Uh, but back then he was doing the shooting himself. He had no problem walking up to somebody um, putting his tool to their forehead and pulling the trigger. Utterly ruthless. Um, in any event, it was Chapo who built the world's first great narco super tunnel. And since he hired a Mexican architect to do that in the early 90s, um, and he did so so he wouldn't have to pay what's called plaza or a tax, 
to the cartel running Tijuana, which is the world's biggest land point of entry between two countries. Um, What's that called again? That that it, largest land opening point of entry. P-O- okay, okay, okay. It is the San Isidro port of entry. It's actually two ports, uh, about five miles apart, if my geography is right, in uh, San Diego. And what Chapo did, rather than pay the guys who ran Tijuana, which was and remains the most lucrative drug checkpoint on the planet, he decided to dig a tunnel underneath them. And for years was funneling first weed, then cocaine, then heroin, and then fentanyl under uh, the points of entry in California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. There were four, ended up being four major tunnels? Oh, no, there were dozens. We have no idea how many there are. Uh, It's... It's done so brilliantly. Um, These are tunnels dug by hand through soft, loamy dirt um, that he and his engineers somehow figured out a way not only to buttress, but to send light and HVAC systems through. So each tunnel will have a rail. um, And on that rail, that essentially train rail, um, his guys will push these big carts full of product from one warehouse on the Mexican side of the San Isidro point of entry to a warehouse on the San Diego side of the point of entry. Except it's not just one warehouse and it's not just one tunnel, it's dozens. And as soon as the DEA or its tunnel crew, yep, a separate standalone federal agency, um, a bunch of cops whose only job is to find and take down or seal up these narco tunnels as soon as they find one and pour concrete into it, uh, the cartels simply dig another one right next door to it using one of the buttress walls as a foundation no shit it's just like that it's just like hey they filled that one we'll dig the one right right next to it and utilize because we already know the path we know where it pops up exactly this is falling into the weeds a bit i want to i want to you said so many things that i want to talk about but um isn't that like obvious and then and then, the, and then it's the same building, and the people who've caught the first one see the trucks going in and out of the same buildings again, and they just shut it down. Or again, you never see the trucks, e- even right. at the warehouses. Well, of course. So there are trucks on either side. Chapo was a genius not only at pulling and pushing stuff through, pushing drugs through, pulling uh, pulling cash out. Um, he was a genius at setting up auxiliary businesses. He owned a chain of supermarkets. What do supermarkets use? 18 wheelers uh, to truck produce. We get an astonishing amount of our produce, lettuce, avocado, nuts, tomatoes, bananas, etc. from Mexico. Um, 
That point of entry I named San Isidro is the busiest in the world. There are 75 vehicles passing through every day um, from Tijuana to San Diego. And once they're across the border, um, it's a straight shot up I-5 to Los Angeles mm. and points north. Um, and Los Angeles, I know we're getting very weedy here, but Los Angeles is the great Western distribution point. Los Angeles has an extraordinarily vast complex of warehouses in South LA um, from which drugs are um, constantly coming and going. So LA connected to all the major highways uh, by one or two left turns, um, then feeds its product to Chicago, which is America's central headquarters for drugs. Um, and once it's in Chicago, Chicago is two and a half hours from New York, um, from just about anywhere in the country, and also is completely networked by superhighways. A, a couple of things. I don't know if this is true, but I'll just throw this out there because I know you're a sports guy too. I heard that Wayne Gretzky's genius <laughs> – I probably read it in some pop psychology book somewhere was the fact that he could see patterns so that basically he would see something happening a minute, uh, uh, the puck the guys doing something with the puck that he's seen his whole life. And so he would go skate somewhere that no one else was. Cause he knew that 82% of the time the puck ends up back over here. He gets it. He scores. So I think, I, yeah, I used to say of Gretzky that he could see two seconds into the future. Okay. So it wasn't that he knew where the puck was going to be, he knew where the puck would be two seconds from uh, the time he had it on his stick or the time it was on someone else's stick. And Gretzky, like Steve Nash, it's funny with these Canadians, how do they see into the future, um, was able to read plays that hadn't happened yet. Jordan, same way, could read plays, um, Steph the same way, Steph Curry, can see a play, can see a play's end before it's begun. So so you, we got that with El Chapo. Another just quick connection. This is just pointless what I'm saying, except I just I, I fancy it. Um, you said that he was a logistics genius. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember if it was Darwin's parents or someone, but someone who was made teacups figured out that they could put the teacups on a boat. Do you know the story I'm talking about? And no. take and take and take the teacups down the boat and sell them to the villages along the the maybe it was the the, the Thames, and that's how they eventually got to the Queen. And when the Queen started using those teacups, that business fucking exploded. But it was a logistics things they uh, 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 problem that uh, that person solved, and it was a teacup maker. God, I wish I could. Maybe someone in the comments will. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing these like these these stories, right? These once again these patterns of these. Um, and then and then ballsy, right? Uh, oh, but yeah, I you know, one of the things that they say about paratroopers, serial killers, and narco traffickers is that they lack a brain chemical called MAO. MAO is the fear neurotransmitter, mm. and there are people with panic disorder who have way too much of it. Um, or they have generalized anxiety disorder, or they, or they have OCD. And then there are the people with little or none of it. 
And those are the people to be really scared of because they don't fear consequences. Uh, David Weed, uh, I, I met El Chapo in the Isle of Del de Margarita in 1996. Wow. Wow. I'm glad you're still on this side of the grass to tell us that. Hey, I, I wonder... I wonder if you know that the second they tell you about one of the tunnels, your odds of living the next 10 years goes down by like 12% or some shit like that. You know what I mean? Cause like oh, so much worse than that. So who digs the tunnels? Chapo essentially kidnaps peasants. He doesn't kidnap them. They don't know they've been kidnapped yet. Right. They'll find out on the other end. So these folks who are desperate for money, you know, the folks who are swimming across the Rio Grande, who are skulking under or over uh, the fence. Um, he rounds up these migrants, many of them not from Mexico, but from Honduras or Salvador, um, who are even more desperate than the poorest people in Guadalajara, um, Sonora, etc., and they dig these tunnels by hand, and their bonus at the end of the tunnel dig is a bullet in the back of the head. What percentage of them? A hundred percent. And how long does it take to live a tunnel, to dig a tunnel? Uh, that I couldn't tell you. <laughs> that works too, to live a tunnel. I said it wrong, but that works too. How long to live a tunnel? Uh, no one who's ever dug a tunnel has, has talked to me um, because they'd have to use a swami um, to speak to me from the afterlife. We, by we, I mean archaeologists are going to be digging up narco, um, Chapo's mass burial sites for thousands of years. Um, the reason Chapo killed everyone connected with the digging of a tunnel was at some point or another, they were going to have some kind of innocuous run-in with law enforcement, and Chapo could never be sure that they wouldn't panic and tell whoever um, had stopped them, whether it was a traffic cop or a federal officer, where that tunnel was in exchange for immigration consideration. Paul, I'm going to make a, a, a leap here real quick. Bear with me. I would go to a hotel with a friend of mine for years, and he would bring a stack of 20s. We were going to stay in the hotel for a week. This happened all the time. And he would bring you know, a, a, a stack of 20s, you know, I don't know how many, let's say 100. Okay. And, and every person he saw from the second we drove showed up there, he would give $20, right? $20 to the guy who opened his door, $20 to the guy who took his bags up, $20 to the guy at the front desk. And so by the time we got to the room, he had spent $200, right? He'd given at least 10 20s away. And he would do that throughout the stay, and it would change our entire stay. And he would explain to me that um, you do that, it, it, you know, these are nice hotels, right? The Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, things like that, right? And you do that, and what it does is it completely changes your stay there because everyone there is now working for you because they know that they're going to get a 20. I, I understand and appreciate the phenomenon uh, uh, greatly. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm all, I, I love rewarding people. You know what I mean? I love giving the Starbucks guy a tip who says, thank you, please. Uh, you have beautiful kids. Fuck. Yeah. Thank you for contributing to the happiness of civilization. I love all that stuff, right? Rewarding the people around you. Um, but, but I'm also, uh, uh, I, I think I'm also a libertarian. And the problem is, is that 
if the go- I don't want big government, but if the government, what I'm seeing, hearing you say also is, is that whoever has the most money is running the fucking show. Like every time you're saying this, you haven't said it explicitly now. I'm like, how is he getting away with so much? And I'm like, well, because he's putting food on so many people's tables, right? Yeah. So it's what's that phrase? Um, silver or lead, you know, when a guy is recruited into some low level functions for the cartels, um, it is not, you know, they're not filling out job applications, although Chapo made everybody fill out job applications. And the information he was most interested in was the age and location of their children. Oh, fuck. Right. So, um, but the, <laughs> the boarding bonus is lead or silver. You either take our money or you take our bullet. Mm. And that is a really strong incentivizer, right? Okay, so so real quick here. So there's two things. The guys. So what you're saying is the guys digging the tunnels. They did it for the money and for food, trying to feed their kids. But you're saying there's another group of people who, if they didn't work for him, they knew the only other option was death. That is correct. And oh, interesting. I'd never heard that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so you know, if you're going to run a fifteen twenty billion dollar a year operation, you need all sorts of employees, right? You need the folks who dig the tunnels. You need the folks who carry the product through. Um, you need the folks um, on the other side who never see the drugs, never touch the money, the logistics people. Um, you need the folks who operate, who open and operate phony businesses on the U.S. side because you got to wash that cash somehow, right? Um, much of it is coming... Uh, back on the retail side in fives, tens, and twenties. Nobody wants fives, tens, or twenties. You can't, um, <laughs> you can't take them to a bank, um, and you certainly can't hide them because they're too bulky. So what comes across finally is hundred-dollar bills. And um, one of the agents I have written a lot about. I won't name him here did a raid on a, on one of Chapo's houses and I'm going to get the town wrong. I, I think it was Monterey where they went in looking for bodies. They thought uh, because people were going in and not coming out of this particular dwelling um, that it was a kill site and they found no bodies. They brought the dogs in, no trace, no scent. They couldn't even find weapons. And it's finally, Somebody has the idea to open up the living room wall just just for giggles. And what do they find? They find that the entire house, two-story house, is insulated with $100 bills in vacuum-sealed bags. Wow. wow. The insulation in that house was $26 million of U.S. currency wow. in hundreds and I know your next question, where does all that money go once it's seized? Yeah. So it goes to the U.S. Treasury with a, I think it's a 10% kick out to the local law enforcement agency um, who recovered the money. Um, so you ask why it's impossible to win the war on drugs or make any progress. Well, 
we have now built a hundred billion dollar a year industry called the prison industrial complex. We have 2.2 million folks sitting in state, federal, and county prisons in America. That's a thousand percent more than we had when the war on drugs kicked off. And last numbers I saw, two thirds of the folks in all of our prisons combined have substance abuse issues. It's why they're there. So, um, if we had elected to treat those folks instead, which is vastly more effective um, as a crime deterrent, um, we would have a third of the population um, in prison. And those folks would be out um, working in the community as taxpayers, not tax burdens. But I digress. And, and, and that's why and I was curious what, what your opinion, some, what some of your opinions were on them, um, on, on the situation. So that's, you're basically saying one out of every 150 people in the United States is, is locked up behind bars, right? Um, Correct. And in certain communities, challenged communities, communities of color, the number is vastly higher. So the prison population in America, God, it's been a while since I looked at these. But that's different- not because of their skin color. No, 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 no. It's and where, unfortunately, because it's said like that, it feels like the vast majority of the United States thinks that. Yeah. So, um, which and, is which? It really, um, I, I have to tell you, it's kind of uh, scares me at the IQ of the people around me. <laughs> well, we get warnings of that or reminders of that every four years during our national elections. So, the there is a grossly disproportionate number of people of color in prison, Um, but they're in prison not because they're inherently more criminal, by no stretch of the imagination. Um, They're in prison because they're poor and because their communities are saturated by by external sources with drugs. Used to be the Italian mob in the 40s and 50s New York. and then, of course, it was, uh, you know, Colombian mobs, Dominican mobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what about culture and like what about culture, culture's role and. Um, uh, yeah. What about culture's role, including that in terms of like households? Like I, there's a statistic I see over and over and over just everywhere. If you don't have a father at the, if you don't have a mother and father that are together, your chances of having cancer go up 50%. It, it, they're correlates. They're not causes. Your chances of going to 80% of the dudes in jail are, um, uh, don't have dads. A, another really strong correlate, Paul, is the penis. If you have yeah. a penis, shit gets <laughs> like, I mean, your chances of going to jail are significantly higher than if you have a vagina. All true. You haven't said a false word yet. Um, And that's why it bugs me every time. The color thing really bugs me because I just don't think it's a strong correlate. No, I think it's a I think it's a fan. It's a um, God, I think it's bad propaganda for people who are better equipped to live at the equator than at the North Pole. (laughs) Yeah. You you know what I mean? Like I do. Uh, the truth is that, you know, the vast, vast majority of people in prison are poor, right? Right, right. And in the, you know, I, I'm not a criminologist. Um, sometimes I play one on TV in these series that get spun off from my stories in Rolling Stone. Uh, but, you know, 
the things you said are right. If there's not a father around, if there is economic trauma, mm -hmm. because it is an enormously traumatizing thing to be poor in America, right? You are surrounded on all sides by images of luxury, by images of acquisition. Um, and here you are with barely enough to eat, if that, um, you know, attending horrifically underfunded or understaffed or all of the above schools um, in dangerous communities. You've seen people die. You've seen violence from a very young age. Uh, the traumatized brain will treat itself one way or another. And, you know, the greatest folly of the war on drugs is that we are trying to eradicate the ways people dose themselves for pain and fear without doing anything about the pain and fear that people live in. Right. All of the drugs, whatever it is, right? It's a coping, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Coping you know, tool, coping tool, right? Alcohol, all drugs. Um, I mean, I mean, almost natural like synthetic. You're right. So we've been doing this, you know, since we pushed the rock aside in the cave and walked outside for the first time. Um, it was an inherently terrifying thing to be alive, um, you know, in prehistoric um, sub-Saharan Africa. And it's, you know, for a lot of us, terrifying to be alive right now. One of the things that has changed so much, though, in the 30 odd years I've been covering the war on drugs is you could not get yourself dead by smoking a joint mm. or huffing a line of cocaine back in the days when we were all doing that, when we were all playing, when we were all experimenting, when we were all running around on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, obsessed with getting ourselves laid. These days, in fact, then I appreciate you saying that too. The, the getting laid part, so many people forget that that's kind of what keeps us uh, the whole right. fucking earth spinning. I appreciate you throwing that in there. Well, it's either, you know, it's neglected the drive to stay alive, which is built on fear, um, or it's the drive to procreate, which is right. built on the other thing. And right. so <clears throat> the difference, as I was saying, is that nowadays, a THC gummy that isn't THC, an Oxycontin that contains no Oxycontin, an Ativan that has zero Ativan can and will kill you the first time you take it. And that is the biggest tectonic shift in the war on drugs um, since it began. We are now losing... Well, the official number is 110,000 last year dead of overdoses in America. That is a grotesque undercount. I talk to cops all over the country who tell me they're pulling bodies out of houses, buildings, et cetera, that never get autopsied. And, you know, there's never a cause of death listed. So that 110,000, which, by the way, is... Oh, 500% more than just six years ago is a woeful undercount. And the thing that's most terrifying to people who know anything about how drugs are bought and sold in this country, 
is that the dead are our babies. They're 11-year-olds. They're 15-year-olds. They're kids who go online looking to make friends, looking to keep the friends they have, looking just not to get cyberbullied by the kids at school they know don't like them. And they are not only exposed to drugs online and exposed to dealers online, they are bombarded on various social media portals with drug menus. And that's my next story. Um, can someone please put in, in the chat the guy we had on who made the movie about the fentanyl deaths? The kid, have, I, uh, God, I have to share the name of this movie with you. This kid made a uh, movie where he interviews five families who lost people from fentanyl. They're all <laughs> young people, right? And he weaves all their stories together. I had to stop the movie like four or five times because I was crying so fucking hard. Yeah, yeah. Jake, Jake Chapman uh, showing. Jake Chapman showing his understanding of math. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, uh, you're much more likely to get hit by a nuclear bomb if you're Japanese. I, I understand. Very, <laughs> a very strong point. It is. It is a tough life being Japanese. Um, well, it's, it, it was a lot tougher in 1945, um, <laughs> as, as we all know now, having walked out of the theater in the last month. Um, what's really, really extraordinary and. I don't know how much you know about the story of fentanyl and um, Chapo's role in... No, tell me. I'd love to hear it. Okay. So Chapo was, again, among many, many qualities, he was a fearless world traveler. Chapo spent a lot of time opening and creating markets in, um, in Europe, in Western Africa, but above all in China. And Chapo was making and exporting crystal meth long before he got into the fentanyl game. Um, nobody. Did he do drugs, Paul? Did he do drugs? Uh, the word on the street is that he never touched them until he went to prison. Okay. And in prison, um, again, this is all fist hand. Um, his main drug of choice, dear friend, <laughs> was Viagra. Wow. He, <laughs> Chapo would have fiestas in prison where he'd open the cafeteria, bring 20, 30, 40, 16-year-old girls in. Um, and everybody who was working with or for Chapo in prison, whether it was at Altiplano or what was the place before then where he spent the most time, um, uh, Basically, it was pizza and pussy for all, um, at least the guys who were down with him. And that included the prison guards and wow. prison officials. Um, and, and if you're using $100 bills as insulation for a house, you can, <laughs> buy, you can pay off anybody. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. If you have enough money, you can get, do whatever you want. And I'm not saying that with any negativity or connotation. I'm just – it just is that way. It really is, yeah. Okay. I've, so there's so many fun facts about Chapo that I learned through, you know. So I, I, I wrote about these two brilliant uh, DEA super cops, uh, the number two at the time, Jack Riley, and his right-hand man, John Delina, who is now the number three at the DEA um, in, in Washington. And they told me so much incredible tradecraft. For instance, every house that 
uh, Chapo owned um, always had at least two things. It always had a hidden stairway to the sewer system, no matter where the house was or how humble it may have appeared from the outside. There was a combination of electronics in the house that when operated in the right sequence would lift a bathtub off its hinges and underneath that raised bathtub would be a really well-built concrete set of stairs into the catacombs, the subway, or the sewer systems of a town, village, city. And at the bottom of that staircase, you'd always find the same thing, a goat horn or an AK-47. Um, goat horn is Mexican slang for an AK-47. And on the bottom of that AK-47, which was Chapo's favorite weapon, the number 289. And I think it's 289, but again, I don't want to be held to it. And 289 would be engraved in gold and diamonds on the butt of the, um, of the gun. And it was years before they finally figured out what the number stood for. It might have been 789. It was Chapo's place on Fortune's richest men on the planet. Wow. 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 Uh, Forbes L. Chapo. <laughs> yeah, look up that number. Um, and yeah, he's in you there. Joaquin Guzman Lorea, that's him? That's him. Yeah, a bunch of names. Hey, is, is this guy still alive? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, well, you wouldn't want his life. He is going to spend the rest of his days in a windowless cell at the impenetrable of Florence ADX, the world's most secure super prison in um, uh, eastern Colorado. It is a horrible place to spend a, spin a single day if you're on the wrong side of the door. I can't imagine it's much fun for the folks who work there either. Um, but it is in the middle of nowhere and you have no access to visitors. You have no access to entertainment. You get books. Um, you get, if I get this right, you get a shower once a week and you get a second hour out of your cell in a so-called recreation area which is essentially the size of two cells and you're by yourself um, from today for the rest of your natural life. There was, um, there was a guy named Otto. Uh, uh, let me, let me go back a second. Do you think El Chapo has any value to society anymore? Do you think that he could be utilized to make, he could be rehabilitated so that he adds value to society or that he could, he should be allowed to write a book or he should be interviewed. And, and then the follow-up to that is, have you tried to interview him since he's, he's sort of, you know, one of the premier characters in a, in a subject matter that you are very passionate about. Have you tried to go there? Um, well, I certainly sat with him in a courtroom enough. Okay. When he was tried and finally sentenced in a U.S. court, um, Supreme court in Brooklyn, New York, I was there every day. Um, couple of days I actually sat next to his wife at the time who is now herself doing life in prison 
as a co-conspirator. Um, and Chapo was 15 feet away. But no, Chapo has never spoken to a U.S. journalist unless <laughs> you want to get really jiggy with the term journalist and call Sean Penn a journalist. He right. did Chapo famously. Oh, crazy. And, and, and do you think that there's any value in could you, we, we started the show with putting people in, 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 you know, talking about rehab, you know, as opposed to prison. Yeah. You think that dude could be rehabbed? Do you think there's any value in rehabbing him? The, the main guy? Well, what are you rehabbing him from? Right. Is, right. You know, he's a Good question. He's a guy who is killed. We'll never know. Right. Um, right. We'll never charge him with those crimes because there's no way to prove any of them. Um, and oh, by the way, he's doing, you know, a quadzillion years um, in consecutive sentence bids for uh, his narco trafficking crimes, the kingpin crimes. Um, he must I, have some value, like he can tell us how, how to stop this in the future or <laughs> maybe. No, what he right? can do is tell us where he buried that $15 billion so we can begin to recover some mm, is you that know, true? Tell me about that. There's $15 billion buried? That's the guess. So Chapo not only owns supermarkets, he owns banks, enormous amounts banks. of property in Mexico and abroad. Um, and of course, we don't know where any of it is. Um, I am sure that uh, the United States attorney in the Southern District negotiated fiercely with him Um or attempted to negotiate fiercely with him to lessen the severity, the location, the terms of his sentence with him in exchange for revealing where his assets were. And he didn't give up anything. As far as I know, Chapa's the only guy who never flipped on anybody because who's he going to flip on? Mm. You only flip up, you don't flip down. Has he been replaced? Oh, yeah. So the none of this is funny. It's all horrific. It's all just saturated in blood. There used to be five cartels in Mexico. Right? So from the Big Bang moment in 93, when the Guadalajara uh, cartel went kaboom, it actually went kaboom earlier, um, a couple of years earlier. But in any case, since the one monstrosity, the Guadalajara cartel, what we call the Federation, broke up when we arrested the leader, uh, El Padrino, um, since it broke up into five, um, we have been waging this disastrous war against those five entities, um, Sinaloa, Gulf, Juarez, Tijuana. Um, and we successfully cut off the head of the snake. We successfully arrested and or killed um, the cartel bosses, their underbosses, and their plaza lieutenants. And for our trouble, we now have a hundred cartels. So instead of five King Cobras, we've got a hundred super poisonous rattlesnakes. And we have no idea who's running which. We have no idea how to, again, decapitate, um, disable 
any of these awful operations, um, who, by the way, have gotten wildly more bloody and medieval and indifferent to human life in the last 30 years. So for all these trillions we have spent trying to disable these cartels in the idea that once you left them leaderless, they were then going to be easy to crush. We got the exact opposite. We got this huge multiplication of demons. And so now nobody knows who we're chasing. Um, We have less and less of a relationship with law enforcement in Mexico than we did. And the folks that we have hired um, to be super cops have all retired. The great undercovers are gone. Um, the real ass kickers, the Jack Riley's, the John Delinas, they're either retired or they're now wearing suits in DC. And the DEA and the FBI are essentially run by Goldman Sachs these days. They're all analyt- analytics people. They're no longer the badasses and gun carriers of your. And honestly, we are running around like headless chickens in ways that we weren't doing even back in the bad old days. We don't have a drug policy that's coherent, that's effective. Um, And maybe it's because there is no coherent or effective drug policy. But in any case, um, this country has never been more at sixes and sevens about this existential menace than it is right now. Um, the guy I sent you a link, by the way, or I'm going to uh, yeah, I'm going to send you a link right now. Um, nothing you need to look at now. But the kid's name is Dominic Torino. Mm. I only call him. I don't mean call him a kid as disrespectful. The movie's brilliant just because he's half my age. But um, he uh, after I watched the movie. And I, 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 I'm, I'm not a um, statistics major by any means, but with those numbers that you were saying, over 100,000 kids dying every year, you know, be, between the age of, I don't know, 5 and 25 from fentanyl overdose, not e- while they're trying to take something else, right? Sure. Um, uh, it ends up being something. I did the math on it. Um, don't quote me on it. But basically, if you're born today and we keep up at this pace, you have a 1 in 5 chance. Of, it, it's it's actually stifling our population growth. You have like a one in five chance of fucking dying from fucking a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. It starts to, when you start doing the numbers because you look how many people are born every year in the United States and you look how many are dying from fentanyl and you start playing with those numbers. You're like, uh oh, that's that, that's yeah, not good. It's, it's it's really really awful. Here's another number that should scare the shit out of you and your listeners. I was talking to someone from SAMHSA. Please don't ask me what that stands for. All of these government super agencies, it's something about mental health. And they really are the curators of all the dreary numbers. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. Thank you. And what they told me is the day you first start with fentanyl, you have essentially 18 months to live. The average life expectancy fentanyl user in America is 18 months. Moreover, by the end of that first week or month or whatever of habituation, you are knowingly or otherwise seeking out 
your headstone, meaning you're looking for that high that will replicate your first high, but because you built up such chemical dependence, um, it now takes so much more. Uh, and essentially what you're looking for by the time you know, you're one of the walking dead on our streets um, is you're looking for what they call the hot shot, the shot that takes you out. And you'll never know you died. You'll never feel it coming. You'll just be higher than you ever were. And then you will be never were. Uh, I, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. And... I don't know any single I don't know a single person who's died of HIV and yet in the last 18 months less than 1 degree of sep 1 degree of separation away from me or less I know 5 people who've died from fentanyl overdose all all young all under 30 yeah. uh none of them do, like just like you said none of them doing fentanyl none of them were doing fent I mean they did fentanyl but they weren't you know they're were trying to do something else yeah of course you know it's i got crazy. an argument with one of my rolling stone editors at a christmas party good i like you more for that already right now <laughs> she was furious at me because i just published the story called we hunt killers about a group of top secret federal agents in san diego this unit has been disbanded because it was so fucking good at its job. That's what we do in America. Um, we take a bunch of super agents, we put them together, or they find each other, right? Much more often how it happens. Uh, these six brilliant cops in San Diego, whose only job was to hunt, catch, and if need be, kill cartel assassins on the streets of San Diego, Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Tucson, and they caught 300 of those motherfuckers in a span of less than 10 years. 300 stone cold killers. And <clears throat> as I said, they took those guys and broke them up as soon as they got so good at their job that they should have basically opened their own academy and taught a bunch of other border feds how to do exactly what they did. Um, in any event, I can't remember. Oh, yes. So Why'd she get angry? Story. Yeah. And at a Rolling Stone party, and in the story, I explain why fentanyl um, now infects virtually every product that comes across the border, um, including and most deadly um, uh, the form of exact duplicate pills and tablets for American pharmaceuticals. So if you are getting an Ativan, if you're getting an Adderall, if you are getting any medication um, from a source other than Dwayne Reed, um, Rite Aid, or Walgreens, that shit's fentanyl. Mm. Straight up, straight down, that's fentanyl. You're going to die. And why are you going to die? So when you take pure fentanyl and you start chopping it on the Mexican side, um, you start cutting it with, you know, all of these additives, um, not only to stretch the product, um, but also so that you don't kill every single consumer every single time. Um, you're taking stuff that 
if you want to be sure of quality control, you have to atomize. Basically, you can leave nothing called a hot spot, a, you know, a speck of pure fentanyl. Um, you have to dilute, you have to thoroughly homogenize so that there isn't still flecks of pure fentanyl in that pill, in that powder, in that liquid, right? Um, but Mexico's chemists, um, and they're all amateurs, are not doing quality control. Um, well, that's not true. They are. <laughs> so, again, talking to my DEA pals, what I hear is that the folks who they try the product on, the Chapitas, Chapo's three sons, they do, um, they do quality control testing, but they're not testing for safety. They only send the product north when it kills their human tasters. That's when they know the soup is done. Ship that bad boy out. The wait, door. wait a second, Paul. You're telling me that they they they'll make it while they're. It's like it's like if my wife's making cookies and she's having me taste them. They make these drugs, and then when someone dies, they know it's done. That's correct. Why would I? I don't understand why they would do that. Aren't they in the business? Wouldn't they want to keep their people the the consumer alive? In any other form of commerce, yes, a hundred percent. But in the world of addicts, the dose that kills the kid in the in the midst of your circle is the dose that everyone is running top speed to grab. Damn. Why? Because a month, a year into your addiction, the dose you started out with is just a fraction of what you're taking now to stay high. You'll never get as high as you were that first time, but man, do you build up dependence to morphine derivatives fast. It's why OxyContin was originally compounded as five and 10 milligram tablets. Um, and within a couple of years, the Sackler family was mm. uh, pumping out 160, 160. And time was at America's pill mills, which are largely gone from the scene. You could, as a Medicaid recipient, or as a private pay patient, walk in, put your $250 cash down, um, pay the phony doctor, get a script for 90 Oxycontin, either 80 milligrams each or 160. That, and, and by the way, then pay a $3 Medicaid copay, walk out on the street, that bottle of pills was worth 10K on the street if you sold them individually so oh, that's so that's so yeah. hard to get my head yeah. wrapped around and, and now and now and now what you're saying is every that people can actually make this stuff i actually went on amazon look you can press you can just get some fentanyl start pressing your own pills and start selling your own shit exactly. and call it whatever you want and there are people getting fedexes from china you know um envelope mailers that contain five six ounces well Five, six ounces of fentanyl, that's a lot of heroin, fake heroin you're putting on the street. And yes, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of home cooks 
but by far, you know, 99.99% of the fentanyl coming into our country is over or under our southern border. Do you have kids, Paul? I do. I have one beautiful young man who's 24. Um, I am spared this particular hell for a different hell. My kid is um, severely disabled. He has... um, uh, fragile X and autism and is largely nonverbal. So this is one fear I don't walk around with um, or lie awake with at three in the morning. Um, I have a whole different set of concerns about my young man um, who will outlive me and who will nonetheless need cradle to grave care. Um, Let's talk about something a little more upbeat, if that's okay. Please, please, please. It bears very closely on this. So we began by talking about Portsmouth, Ohio, and Mm -hmm. its historical importance and conversation war against drugs, war on drugs. The Sackler family, we all know who the Sacklers are, yes? The, The Oxycontin people, right? The Oxycontin people, arguably the most lethal. Um, the most, <laughs> oh, what do we call the Sacklers without getting sued? Uh, yes, they invented Oxycontin. They <clears throat> persuaded the Food and Drug Administration that an end-of-life narcotic that was only supposed to ever be used in an operating room or under hospice conditions was, in fact, safe for everyday Americans to use to treat minor aches and pains. That's the extraordinary sales job they did on the FDA in the mid-1990s. And in 1997, I believe, 96, 97, OxyContin was proved. It wasn't just approved. It was raved up by the American Medical Association to all of its practitioners as their moral duty to prescribe to people suffering from what was called the fourth indicator, which was pain. It was their moral duty to treat pain um, however it presented and to prescribe end-of-life drugs that were, per the Sackler family, not addictive, were safe to use every day. And uh, you want to know who paved the road for fentanyl? It was the Sackler family. And not a single member of that family has ever faced criminal prosecution, will ever pay out a dollar of their own money, will ever be forced to live in hiding or shame. Far from it. The Sackler name is on hospital wings, is on galleries, is uh, on the door of museums in every city in America. Um, That family is the Caesars of America. And They did their original mass distribution of OxyContin in Southeast Ohio. Why there? Because Arthur Sackler 
and his son Richard did extraordinarily deep market research, not into the community there, into the population of doctors who prescribed to that community. What they saw was that middle America, especially along the Ohio River, people who grew up working in factories, um, working in steel, steel mills, um, suffered disproportionately from aches and pains, um, went to their local country doctors or general practitioners, and for decades, um, the most prolific prescribers of painkillers, which were primitive things in those days, um, um, I don't remember the names of them. You know, Percocet came along before, but codeine, basically codeine derivatives, um, were being prescribed at really prolific rates in Appalachia. And so that's where the Sacklers sent their beautiful or handsome young drug reps to all of those country doctors and small town general practitioners and said, look, these will treat um, the folks that come into your office every week or once a month much better than the stuff you're prescribing now, and they're safe. And so in 1997, 98, no sooner had uh, the FDA approved of this demon drug than there was America's first pill mill directly across the river from Portsmouth, Ohio. Within five years, there were 15 pill mills serving the Portsmouth community, a town of 19,000. Damn. 27 million pills written a year, or some such number, um, from 97 until the DEA ran herd on all those pill mills towards the end of the aughts. But there was like a 15-year run. I think it was 2012 when the last pill mill fell in southern Ohio. Um, but can you, sorry, Paul, can you tell me exactly what a pill, I know I, I can, I can picture in my head pill mills, a place where they just make shitloads of pills, but how is that happening? So they, there, they, there's they, not oversight on it. There, you can just make just, it's legal drug making. No. So nobody's making the pills. The pills are being manufactured by the, um, Purdue, by Purdue Pharma, right? Um, uh, this, unheard of drug company that got very rich off a distribution deal uh, for Valium in the late 60s, early 70s, um, which then introduced um, the most powerful narcotic at the time, something called MS Contin, which was the father of OxyContin. MS Contin was oxycodone plus um, so it's oxycodone plus uh, Tylenol or aspirin. I can't remember which. Uh, the difference in oxycontin is it's straight oxycodone. It is the pure drug itself. It is essentially pure heroin. So uh, a pill mill. What is a pill mill? It is a place uh, that may look like a doctor's office, um, oftentimes. Oh. But the machines, the diagnostic machines, aren't plugged in. It's a place where patients spend an average of three minutes with a physician. Um, first time, the last time they see them, no matter what. It's 
you walk in, you get $250 U.S. currency, you slap it down on that physician's oh, desk. Wow. He or she writes you a prescription without doing an MRI, without doing an X-ray, without calculating your level of pain. Um, you tell them back, leg, ankle, and you walk out of there with a refillable supply uh refillable prescription for 90 of whatever your poison is, whether it's oxy 40s, 80s, 160s. They don't make 160s anymore, but they did. So I go to college for eight years to become a physician, do four years as residency or some shit. And the next thing I know, all I am is a drug pusher for pharma. If you're a rogue doctor who has lost his license in the state you were practicing, uh, but whose license is somehow still seen as valid, by the state of Ohio, if you still have a DEA account, if you're still able to write prescriptions, you can make a million dollars a year sitting at a desk and simply writing scripts. And that's what pill mills were. They were these strip mall um, storefronts where you would see lines of out-of-state cars parked at six in the morning waiting for the door to open at 10 a and there'd be fights in the parking lot and there'd people be people throwing up in the parking lot and the poor bastards who own stores next door to the pill mill would be run out of business or would run for their lives from these zombies who were sitting on real the- zombies. I've seen them. Portland turned the whole city of Portland was taken over by zombies. hundred um, percent downtown LA, LA yep. you know, the legions of the undead um, Kensington, Philadelphia. Oh, Kensington, Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom, uh, do you know, I, I just saw a, a friend of mine, Tommy G did a video on, he hung out in Kensington. And soon as he gets there, He's like, maybe we'll see someone shooting up. Not only within three <laughs> seconds does he see someone shooting up, but someone else has to come over and Narcan them. And it's just right. in the middle. It's just on the street, and there's cop. No one, get, no one cares. Nothing you can do. No, it's. I have a brother who lives in Kensington, and his wow, his, wow, his condo is behind a set of gates, and um, he doesn't leave the house unless he's driving, in and out of that gated yard. And uh, every day, uh, whether it's coming or going, he's either stepping on needles or, you know, hopping over them in the curb. Um, Kensington is one of the saddest places on earth because there's uh, an above ground subway that runs through it. And under every overpass, right, because the track is elevated, there are 300 people living sleeping, dying, pissing, shitting um, in that, you know, that half a block long tunnel. And it is the saddest sight on earth. Um, But again, we were trying to talk about something more upbeat. And back to Portsmouth. So Portsmouth, a town vaporized by OxyContin, was lucky enough to host and through no, you know, genius or, um, or, you know, anything other than kismet of its own, it hosted the first great treatment program 
the first comprehensive treatment program for fentanyl addicts, um, a place called the Counseling Center. And it is a one-off in this country. Why do I say that? Because even before the folks who run the Counseling Center, by far the biggest uh, treatment nonprofit in all of Appalachia, it's the biggest treatment center in, I think, five contiguous states. And again, it's in Portsmouth, Ohio. Um, before it joined forces with um, a special forces captain um, to create the fourth leg of this brilliant treatment protocol, um, and that fourth leg is Snapchat. It's not Snapchat. That's, <laughs> pardon me, that's my next story. Uh, that fourth leg is, in, is CrossFit, um, but long before then, beginning um, with the advent of fentanyl, of, pardon me, OxyContin addiction in Southern Ohio, um, they began doing something that no other treatment center does in America. They not only gave folks 90 days of really intensive inpatient care, you know, group therapy, one-on-one, -on -one, a zillion things, they also created this extended community of sober houses. So they converted all of these abandons, all these abandoned houses into sober houses. They literally rebuilt these falling down houses and created a subsidized lodging for addicts in long-term recovery. So for a year or two, after you got out of outpatient, uh, inpatient, you were now in outpatient care living with four, five, six other people in sobriety. And then the third thing they did, which was really brilliant, they brought in um, the folks who did most of the building, um, landscaping, um, you know, um, electrical work, and they hired them to teach recovering addicts the building trades. So carpentry, uh, sheetrock hanging, um, plumbing, electrical, um, you know, uh, landscaping, et cetera. From the second or third week of inpatient treatment, these folks were getting vocational training eight hours a day so that when they got out, they not only had their sobriety, they had a union card. They were able to make double or three times the minimum wage. But it wasn't until they stumbled onto a man named Dale King, or actually he stumbled upon them in 2018, that the fourth leg of this incredible treatment stool um, was added. And that fourth leg is CrossFit. So what does CrossFit do to the brain? First of all, when you've got a substance abuse problem, and not just the substance abuse problem, because why do you have a substance abuse problem? More likely than not, you are treating something in your brain that doesn't feel good. You're either someone suffering from anxiety, suffering from depression, suffering from both, suffering from childhood trauma, uh, the breakup of an important relationship, the loss of a loved one. Something doesn't feel good in your head and it hasn't felt good in a long time. Maybe it's intolerable, right? Um, what CrossFit does 
is take those broken pleasure receptors, what we call dopamine receptors, dopamine pathways, and remake them, basically trim them so that those receptors not only are able to receive dopamine again, make and receive dopamine again, but they're able to make and receive it in manageable doses. So what happens in the addict brain? Those dopamine receptors are instantly flooded with, um, with external dopamine in the form of you know, morphine or morphine derivative. Um, what happens when you addict the brain to external morphine is it forgets how to make its own or it wildly over or underreacts to the transmission of dopamine in your brain. So um, intense exercise remakes and refits the dopamine receptors and pathways in your brain. But unbeknownst to the folks, the good people at CrossFit, it also does something else. And this is the magic. When a mom gives birth to a baby, both baby and mom are flooded with a hormone called oxytocin. It's called the love hormone. It's also called the bonding hormone. The purpose, the evolutionary purpose of oxytocin is to form this unbreakable hormonal connection between baby and mother so that the species survives. Mom will throw herself in front of a saber-toothed tiger or in front of a bullet to keep mm -hmm. it alive. That kid will go on to uh, sire children of his or her own. All right. If you survive, <laughs> when you survive, an hour in a CrossFit box, exhausted past anything you've ever known before, um, but flooded with dopamine, you also are flooded with this second transmitter, neurotransmitter called oxytocin. And what it does is it binds you emotionally to everyone in that room. So by the end of week one, the end of month one, you suddenly have a new family. You have your CrossFit family. And that CrossFit family, people who are doing the right thing, people who are eating the right thing, who are showing up every day, who are building their bodies, rebuilding their lungs, rebuilding the circuitry of their brains, uh, form a hell of a better family than one that sent you down the road to addiction in the first place. And by the way, no slag on the mothers and fathers of addicts. By no means, I know way too many of them, way too many of these lovely people who through no fault of their own um, had a kid, usually a boy, with neurotransmitter difficulties of one form or another. They've got ADHD. They've got, um, you know, a mood disorder, um, an anxiety disorder, you know, the whole Megillah, right? Um, and... So these kids all start out smoking weed in the school bathroom. Um, of course, the weed is 20 times stronger than it was when you and I were smoking weed. That is its own fucking nightmare. Our emergency rooms are suddenly full of kids who are weed psychotic. 
they are so high that for three days, they have to be in a locked facility while that stuff exits their bloodstream. This is, you know, this is happening in every emergency room in America right now. Um, but back to Portsmouth. So from 2018 forward, addicts who come in off the street are being offered and strongly encouraged to take part in an exercise program with Dale. Dale King, a two-tour veteran of the Sunni Triangle in Iraq, a man under fire, a man whose base was blown up by a suicide bomber within weeks of his arriving in northern Iraq in 2004. Um, by the way, that blast killed 20-something U.S. soldiers, um, the biggest suicide bombing death count um, at least of U.S. personnel um, in the course of the Iraq War. Um, he came home after 10 years gone uh, from Portsmouth, came back to his hometown uh, late 2007, and immediately realized he was safer in northern Iraq than he was in southern Ohio. And No uh, hyperbole there, no hyperbole. None whatsoever, because... Portsmouth was just this movie set from The Walking Dead, um, particularly downtown, this once thriving honky-tonk of bars, restaurants, nightclubs, um, antique stores, um, frozen yogurt shops. All that shit was gone. It was boarded buildings and junkies, 20 or 30 of them living in the basement, shooting up shitting, fucking dying together. Um, do Dale junkies K fuck? Do junkies fuck? Oh, yeah. Junkies yeah, have children, okay. brother. Junkies have children. Um, uh, uh, sorry, sorry to derail you. Sorry. It's fine. It is fine. We are good. Um, yeah, you know, junkies are human beings whose, whose human functions still work. Um, not so much... Uh, their neofrontal cortex, you know, the executive function of the brain, but everything else, yes. The part that has you put a condom on. Uh, Paul, I, um, it really irritates me and speaks to, for me to the stupidity of society that we keep talking about a homeless population yeah. because I think it's a misnomer. The same way people keep saying we have a type 2 diabetes problem. What it is is, once again, it's fucking propaganda. We don't have a type 2 diabetes problem. We have a fucking sugar eat Because then if you say we have a type 2 diabetes problem, they're going to try to solve type 2 diabetes. That's not the problem. That's the symptom yep. of the cause, which is eating too much refined carbohydrates. They keep talking about this fucking homeless problem. Uh, I was homeless for many years, and, uh, of, and, and the, there were only two people, myself and one other guy, of the thousands of homeless people that I hung out with who weren't drug addicts, mm -hmm. whether it be alcohol or... Mm -hmm. Um, it was it was before fentanyl. This is in the um, in 2000, 1999, maybe 2004 or five. But everyone was a fucking drug addict. Yeah. yeah. And it's like and, and, and I hear this governor of mine, Gavin Newsom, wants to build these fucking people shelter. And so this is another place where I'm torn. Why I asked you why I had kids. And this is sort of getting into policy at, at 20 years old. I'm like, make drugs legal. I don't give a fuck. Now that I have three little boys, I'm at the place of um, 
uh, thank God what happened to George Floyd happened to George Floyd. Sorry, but I can't have you on the street high on alcohol, fentanyl, and meth uh, with your uh, 18th arrest in three years because I have kids who are riding tricycles in the street. Like I, I made a, I made a, a massive like leap. Do you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden my singular focus is to protect my kids. And, and maybe I've gotten too myopic on that desire to protect them to where I literally was like, hey, let let Go, let bygones be bygones. Let everyone do drugs. Yeah. So I know I'm bringing up a lot, but we have a society that's trying to fix a homeless problem that's not a homeless problem, and we have a society that is now tolerant of uh, uh, of a place that's not hospitable to kids. Yeah. And so well, I, 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 I'm, I'm just like, do you have any advises that like um, – yeah. I mean, I do not let my kids. My kids don't go to school, and they're not. They and they're not allowed screen time. Like they're they're not going to get a cell phone until like they escape from the. It's not the El Chapo jail, but it's the <laughs> Savon Matosian jail. <laughs> I completely understand uh, your wish to throw a coat over those kids. It's um, a really, really psycho world, and by psycho, I mean you know the world online. Um, look, yeah, you can hide from it. You you nailed it. It's the world online. If I can protect them from that as long as possible. All the kids I know, whenever I see a kid and I'm like, hey, man, you seem really well put together. And I start digging a couple things. Yes, they have both parents at home, but they're the kids whose parents didn't give them a cell phone until they were 15 or older, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of things we shouldn't allow kids to do until 15, one of them being playing football. I'm the guy who broke the NFL concussion scandal 15, 16 years ago. And, That's a, I agree with that, too. Um, so back to what's so profoundly powerful about this program is you are taking folks who were costing us. So let's do the numbers here, shall we? We were talking about homelessness. Yeah. Um, it costs in the state of Ohio, well in excess of 45,000 a year to incarcerate someone in state, county, federal prison um, to put them through the counseling center for a year to treat the root problem of their use, their criminal um, conduct in support of their use of drugs costs 31000 So let's do the numbers. 45000 a year to put an addict in prison. 31000 to convert that tax burden into a taxpayer. And it's a one-time expense. Now, I'm not... You mean if it's successful? Uh oh! you. Portsmouth is a is a profoundly important story because it works. We have been trying to treat addiction in this country as an industry now for forty years, right? Um, rehab business, and it is a business, um, is roughly forty years old. Um, what works, and what we now know works, is not just inpatient, not just outpatient, not just vocational. It's everything. You have to surround an addict with the four most desperately needed commodities. One, sobriety. Two, safety in the form of um, long-term subsidized housing. And, you know, whatever you, whatever you think is acceptable or affordable, you know, whether it's six months or a year of outpatient safe housing um, before they can purchase or rent their own apartment, et cetera. 
The third thing, of course, is <clears throat> you have to give them a way to earn a living and support the children that they've left behind with their own parents or in extended foster care. And then the fourth thing, the fourth thing, which is CrossFit. So again, CrossFit on its face is intense exercise for an hour a day or three times a week. No, CrossFit is family. CrossFit are those people who adopt you, who bring you into their tribe, and who hold on to you, who care about you, care about your sobriety, care about who you're dating, care about what's going on with your kids. They are the people you will keep. You know, um, the best of us have two families, the families we were born into, and then the families we make for ourselves of our own children and the people who are dear to us, our best friends, our keepers, right? That's what CrossFit does. So whether you're an addict or not, whether you're, some, whether you're an athlete or not, what we're finding with CrossFit is that working out intensely with a bunch of people, not in competition, but encouraging. I mean, CrossFit gyms are so loud. Everyone's screaming, but they're screaming for you to beat your personal record, right? It's pure support. And so when you complete that year program at the counseling center, you not only have a job that you couldn't have dreamt of getting, whether it's in the building trades or you know working on a factory floor somewhere in a senior position, um, you not only have a safe place to live because at the end of a year, you are now renting your own place or you have bought an abandoned building and you and your buddies are turning it into a beautiful house. And so what Portsmouth has done, and by the way, this is not a love story in Portsmouth. There are enormous numbers of people living in that town who hate the fact that their town is now overrun, not with addicts, but with recovered addicts. They hate the fact that people are coming to their city to get well. And once they get well, they stay as builders, as car mechanics. Really? It's a des I didn't that's the first I've heard of that. It's a Paul, it's a destination sobriety place. It has become a magnet. Wow, that's cool. For addicts in southern Appalachia, from uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, western Pennsylvania. Um, Northern Ohio, Western Ohio. Um, it is, again, a portal to a life that anybody would want. You know, um, part of the problem of being an addict is almost surely you are carrying a felony conviction record because you've stolen from somebody. Yeah. Uh, you've hit somebody with a vehicle while impaired. That's the uh, occupation of addicts, thieves. Thieves. Thievery. thievery. Exactly, because you can't possibly make enough, and right. you're not sober enough, long enough to hold a job. In most cases, there are functioning addicts. Um, it doesn't tend to be a long career um, or a stable career, but yes, there are functioning addicts. And the tolerance for that career is skyrocketed in, in California, thievery. It's, 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 um, it's tolerance. 
the tolerance for it is just skyrocketed. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, tolerance and, you know. Maybe acceptance even. Well, I think there's an enormous pushback and sense of futility and outrage. You know, um, what once seemed like, you know, well, nothing else is working. Why don't we decriminalize petty crime? Yeah, right. That didn't work out. Um, but again, the biggest how does that? Can I ask you a personal question? How does that work when you say stuff like that and you work at Rolling Stone? Is there a con- is there a conflict there? Uh, <laughs> that that last statement? No, the whole idea of working at Rolling Stone is I get to say whatever the fuck I want as long as I don't get sued for saying it. Okay, uh, well that makes me happy. Yeah, you know it's it, it it's 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 a vastly more corporate place than it was thirty years ago when it started, but. You know, um, I'm not censored there. Um, well, I was censored once, and that was the last time they pulled that shit on me. I spent two weeks one-on-one with Donald Trump in 2015. I saw that article, yeah. They tried to censor that? They did censor that quite effectively. Um, yeah, uh, about 10% of what that man said to me wound up in the story. The rest of it was deemed too too dangerous, too actionable legally. Um, to publish and so have you ever talked about that uh yeah i bitched about it a lot to my friends and my family but in any event um moving back to portsmouth because this is something i am so honored to have written about you know for 30 odd years now i've been writing about the darkness in america and for the last four or five years i've really really made it my mission to write at least one huge story a year about a genius a local genius or a local community that is taking on a huge national problem and beating it into the ground. Mm. And I am the beneficiary of one of these geniuses. I told you I had a severely autistic son. Well, when Luke, my son was 16, I scoured the country looking for a single program, just one that would give my nonverbal boy a chance at a life that he might choose for himself when he turned 21 and everything stopped. School stops, therapy stopped, all government funded treatments end at 21 in the state of New York. So I traveled to California uh, where there was a huge cluster of autism in uh, Silicon Valley. That's a whole separate podcast. Southern Florida to Phoenix. I saw some really impressive programs, but none of them made sense for Luke. And then I found the Shared Living Collaborative in uh, Northeast Massachusetts. It's why I now live in Northeast Massachusetts, Mm. why I uprooted myself, my beautiful second wife um, from our lovely home in New York City and just outside it. And we moved lock, stock, and barrel to Northeast Massachusetts. So Luke would be eligible for this one-of-a-kind program, farm-based program, five different farms, um, horses, cows, sheep, goats, chickens, ducks, you name it, organic produce. And at the time I wrote about the program eight years ago, there there was one or two farms and 50 individuals Now there are five farms, huge farms, and 300 individuals who are all living with permanent second families um, who love them, care for them, bathe them, feed them, et cetera, um, and who earn 
enough money to lift themselves out of working poverty, um, three steps up the economic ladder. So this genius, Daniela Morris, solved a local problem with a model that has now been imitated all over the country. That's what's the, name? what's the name of the program? It's called the Shared Living Collaborative. And it's, as I say, it's based out of Merrimack, Massachusetts, but it is now the model. It is now the gold standard for all of Massachusetts human services programs. Um, and it has spread to other states. Um, Daniela gets visitors from all over the world asking her to replicate what she's done um, in Finland, in, uh, in Marseille, in Turkey. Um, and of course she can't, she is one of one. Um, but um, many programs have taken her inspiration um, and started their own version of it. Um, usually parent run. In any event, I'm digressing wildly. I want to share something with you really quick, Paul. Please. Ready? There's a movie called Our House. Uh, I, I when I was um, I, I was barefoot. I was barefoot for two years. I was homeless, and I walked by this home for di uh, disabled adults, um, a supportive living home in Isla Vista, California, a few blocks away from the Pacific Ocean, right in Santa Barbara. Yeah. And I would walk by there just on my journey every day, just doing my homeless thing. And um, and I eventually one day walked in there and applied for a job. Just, just barefoot. I got the job. I ended up working there for, I don't know, fucking four or five years. And I made a movie there. I made my first movie there. The, the um, Apple released um, some software called Final Cut Pro. And I bought a, a used car. And I bought the laptop and the software the day it came out. And I plugged it into a cigarette lighter. And I made my first movie, Our House, there. It nice. won 30 film festival awards. Um, and, and I ended up becoming the lead there. I basically lived with um, severely mentally disabled adults in a supportive mm. living home, experimental uh, supportive living home. The film won 30 film festival awards. I got the uh, award for best film in Park City from Selma Hayek and Forrest Whitaker. Everywhere I played against the Academy Award winning film that year, um, Spellbound, we always beat them. In the, at the, uh, and HBO said that the film just wasn't sexy enough, so, so they didn't buy it. But it's interesting that our paths cross like that um, and that you have, a son, you have a son like that. And eventually the state – when the state of California saw the movie, they said that I was doing a huge disservice to disabled people by, by because of the depiction of them. And all of the parents of these disabled adults came to my defense, and they said, you want it to paint it like it's all like roses and shit. And it's not, and that the movie depicts it perfectly. Yeah. And uh, – It's really hard work. And it's crazy hard work. It's crazy hard work, yeah. especially also to be real with them. You want to be real with with the people, um, with with the people that you're serving. But then there's also this whole state corporate like shit, like trying to keep everything in like in the hamster wheel going. It was crazy. Well, you put your you put your finger on something really important, um, and it uh, leads us back to Portsmouth. So anything, as I have learned in reporting on these local, you know, wizards who have figured out solutions for really, really intractable. Uh, societal problems is that they they work brilliantly in spite of or without top-down government assistance meaning mm. the most powerful kinds of organizations that we build in this country to deal with problems are not vertical they're horizontal 
So at Daniela's um, company, everybody does front of house care. Everyone, including Daniela, does one-on-one work with the folks who are um, uh, living at shared living. And there is no separation of front office and back office. There is no um, hierarchy. I mean, there's a hierarchy in terms of who makes decisions, but in terms of who does what every day, everybody does everything. And it's such an essential example for the rest of us, you know, creating these middle managers, creating these, (laughs) these, uh, yes and no people on the corporate masthead um, just makes for horrible uh, decision-making, allocation of resources, et cetera, et cetera. And inevitably, what happened in the special needs community was that during deinstitutionalization, where we emptied out all our psychiatric hospitals, um, and sent people with severe mental illness, with severe cognitive impairments back to the community is there was nobody ready. There were no programs ready to receive these folks. And so we wound up with a massive homeless population of people who were unable to care for themselves. It was an absolute nightmare um, born out of good intentions. Back to Ohio, What you have is a program where, again, everyone is customer facing. Everyone is client facing. Nobody is sitting, you know, in a corner office um, only doing admin or leadership work. Everybody is intimately involved in the actual business of treatment. And it's such an important lesson for us that we can't create these monolith solutions they have to be community-based they have to be neighbor to neighbor house to house rather than washington flow of money through cleveland flow of money down to you know it just look i have friends who are rich from the rehab space i know what you're talking about i have friends who are very rich from the rehab space yeah it's very lucrative right now it's you and know what you're saying is is that's not the model that's going to work. It's no. got to be someone like Dale King who moved back to their town, who gives two fucks, who's going to actually like if you want the solution. Exactly. So there has to be community buy-in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can't <laughs> you can't build it and they will come, right? You have to do this from the ground up organically. And so since I published that story last month, Dale and the counseling center, by the way, they're not the same thing. Dale runs a gym, um, Dale King, uh, and uh, the counseling center is a standalone enterprise with an enormous number of employees and therapeutic sites, et cetera. Now. Um, but <clears throat> since that story ran uh, in Rolling Stone, they've had reach outs from cities all over the, not just cities, not just politicians, they've gotten reach outs from judges, magistrates who run drug courts and have lots of opioid settlement money to spend creating their own therapeutic communities. Because what anyone who works with these people comes to understand quickly is 
you're never going to end the flow of narcotics. It will never happen in the course of human history. All you can do is treat those people who are susceptible to addiction. And in doing so, you not only empty out, you know, uh, the prisons of nonviolent offenders, you also take this enormous expense, this enormous disbursement of national treasure every year and convert it into earnings. Convert do you think you still have to capture the people, though, and force them to do it? Like, I always think, well, shit, if I was addicted to fentanyl and I was peeing and shitting on the street, I, like, if my kid was on the streets addicted, I, part of me would want him to get arrested so that he gets off the street and he doesn't have access to the drugs anymore. Sure. Do we, do, in that, do, I know we're not going to solve all the world's problems here, but do you still grab the people? Do you still use the police and force them into rehab, into this? Well, you can take people off the streets, but um, you can't keep drugs out of prisons. So right. okay. <clears throat> prisons are because very, of money, because of money again. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, drugs will find their way everywhere. What was Fox on about for a month? There was cocaine found you know, in the White House, for fuck's sake. Joe Biden is not doing cocaine, thanks so much. Um, he should. In any event, you know, you can't do anything about supply. I don't care how many people you stack at the border. I don't mm. care how many people you give oxygen uh, tanks to and stick them under the border. It ain't going to work. It's, you know, it's an enormous landmass. There is no way we can interdict um everything that comes and goes in our country first of all nothing would come or go if we searched every tractor trailer for secret compartments you know and maybe it's one out of 20 that do have them um nothing would ever get to a supermarket and right. actually sell it so again this is a problem whose only effective treatment is on the other side on the consumer side. And um, by the way, I've, I got to bounce in five minutes, but you know, we, we have got to start thinking creatively and humanely about who these people are and what they want. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to live ragged on the streets. Nobody wants to be um, uh, alienated from their children or their parents or the woman they loved. Nobody wants to live in walking, sleeping misery. Um, but you have to give people hope and <clears throat> you have to give them a reason to want to come in. Um, because at least when they're high, they're not feeling the agony of being themselves. So if you can put across the message that really powerful treatment is available. It's free. In Ohio, Obamacare covers drug treatment. For those people who are suffering from addiction and hear my voice, the barriers to entry have fallen. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get into the counseling center today if you show up on their doorstep. There is a waiting list. It may take them, you know, some time to be able to find a bed for you, but they will do everything in their power to do so. And once you're under their roof, taking advantage of intense inpatient um, vocational training, 
exercise, nutrition. They've got nutritionists. Um, they, you know, they're teaching cooking. They're getting people to change so many bad habits. And by the way, if you're standing outside a counseling center or a treatment center anywhere, what are you watching people doing? Smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, right? It is the law, right? You got to replace one drug with another and nicotine won't kill you, at least not that day. Well, f- replace it with CrossFit. And ultimately, you're going to replace it with CrossFit. And by the way, um, this is not a one-off. So we know that because there have been PET scans done on the brains of mountain climbers, of runners, distance runners, marathoners. What they have found is that extreme exercise really, not just extreme, um, but vigorous exercise regularly done changes the brain for the better. Changes the brain, makes it much more adaptive, resourceful, and calm. But again, CrossFit has that additional magic, oxytocin. And so you will meet your best friends. You will definitely fall in love at CrossFit. I mean, the number of marriages that have grown out of this one gym is ridiculous. Um, And what's the first thing that sober addicts do? They start pairing up, right? Mm. Because they've been all alone in the world. And suddenly, Mm. here's that woman sitting across from you in group. She might have four teeth in her head, but you only got two. So you have something in common. (laughs) Oh, by the way, they fix your teeth at the counseling center, too. Whether you need bridges, whether you need dentures, whether you need, you know, um, um, uh, veneers. They will fix your teeth. It'll, you know, wind up costing you something. But all the things you're ashamed of can be fixed, can be treated. Come in, come home, get well. Paul, uh, thanks for coming on. I, um, the next article you write, um, the next story you write, uh, if you have any interest in coming on and sharing the details of it, letting us read it, having you on, pick your brain, do 20 questions with you, I'd love to have you back on. You are a... Uh, an incredible uh, storyteller. I appreciate all the information you sent me in the hour and 45 minutes you gave us today. Thank you so much, dude. What a pleasure, Seven. Thank you so much. And what a great pleasure to me. By the way, I'll be out there next week um, reporting this new story. Uh, uh, where are you? Where, uh, out where? I'll be in Venice. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, up in, I'm up in Santa Cruz. When, when does your next story come out? This one is deep and I can't really get into it because okay. I'm going after a monster. Okay. The, I'm going after the world's deadliest drug dealer. And okay. Nobody you know, nobody you think you know, um, and and yet you know who this is. Okay. Um, Please keep my contact information and uh, and let us uh, jump on the uh, Paul Solitaroff bandwagon and, and pump the story up when it comes out. I'd love that. By the way, we're shooting a documentary around my reporting this story, which is the first time I've ever done it that way. Usually I write the story and then the doc people come to me and say, can we do a deal with you? This time we're doing it right from the jump. So I'll be on screen for all of this thing. Awesome. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Good to meet you. Thanks so much. Ciao. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Solitaroff. Hey, uh, it looks like Dale King, there's a documentary. It's called Small Town Strong. Pre-order now. comes out October 3rd. I don't know if that's this year or if it's already out. I don't even know. There's a trailer here.
subscribe. I guess we'd have to find out from Dale King if this uh, uh, free order. Rent, buy. Oh, it's available now? Is it available now? I'll find out. Someone will reach out to me. Uh, available October 3rd, 2023. Oh, so it's not available now. This year, Dork? What do you mean? What month is it? It's uh, September? August. What the fuck month is it? It's August. August 16th, September, October. Oh, October. Uh, oh, so that's that's not it's not even out yet. Although, for some reason, you can buy it already. Who knows? Uh, there was a funny comment here. Someone said they spoke to Dale King for an hour, but they can't remember any of it. Mad Marv, what's up, buddy? Uh, Dildo, good to see you. There's a comment in here from Jedediah that I liked. I saw your comment turntable uh, also in regards to you have an autistic son. I didn't know that. Or if I did, I'd forgotten. I apologize. Um, or we could take all the drug addicts and uh, scoop them all up with a dump truck and toss them in the desert. Oh, here it is. Uh, Coffee Papa Mountain Mama. I got to talk with Dale at the OG meetup. Unfortunately, I do not remember any of it. Fair enough. Where's, com where's your comment, Jedediah? Oh, uh, here we go. Jedediah Snelson, I believe this is one of the largest benefits to adaptive athletes as well. People whom often isolate now have a community. My one takeaway from all of this is if you're in a fucking affiliate owner and there's people working out and you don't utilize that oxytocin or whatever fucking chemicals are being built to come over and talk to all of the people individually after every class, especially the new people, and build a bomb with them, you're missing an enormous opportunity. The only fucking reason I think techno, electronic music, The Grateful Dead, Fish, any of those fucking genres of music have any popularity is because people did so much drugs when they were there, and so you start to put make the connection between the two. And there's so there's endless stories of fucking affiliates fucking neglecting their new people. You have these fucking clicks in your gym that I always that I hear about more. I, I don't talk about it enough. I probably should. These clicks in your gym that don't aren't nice to new people. Not that they're not not that they're mean to them. They're just not nice to them. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? Like. What what a waste not to take advantage of the fact that people are high on whatever chemicals you're producing when after a crossword workout and then to go over and, and put the love on them. Just put go put the love on them. And hey, and if you're a dude, after a workout's a perfect time to go talk to a girl. Or if you're a girl, perfect time to go talk to a, do, a guy. Pick someone that you think you have no chance with and start start talking to them. Uh, Dale King, love you guys. Uh, just now tuning in, Paul is the fucking man. I get it. I was getting this Vincent Price uh, feel from him. Do you guys know who? Vin I don't know if you guys know who Vincent Price is. It's totally getting this Vincent Price. Maybe I can pull that up. Vincent Price. Vincent. Vincent Price. I wanted to lead the conversation, that, but he, he he had so much stuff he wanted to share that I didn't. I mean, there was only so much I could fucking interrupt him. But I really wanted to lead the conversation, ask him shit like, "Hey, were you ever?" Uh... Was your life ever threatened by any of these drug dudes? Shit like that. Um, but uh, essential facts about horror legend Vincent Price. No one conjures up the spirit of. Oh. No, not this. 
trying to find like one little Vincent Price clip. Let's see. Vincent Price Collection 2, now on Blu-ray. Oh, here we go. Here's Vincent Price. He was on a Brady Bunch episode. That's how I know him. Here we go. Each other, let's get acquainted with the drink, shall we? You guys recognize that dude? Most of you are probably too young. Oh, yeah, from Thriller. What Good job, dude. You're right, Jake. Fuck. That was Vincent Price. Awesome. Okay. That's where he's, that's, that's his true fame from that song, Thriller. Yep. Yeah, I was totally getting Vincent uh, Price vibe from it. Uh, Dale, there's a lady in here who spoke to you for an hour and she can't remember what you guys talked about. I apologize for that. Sultry expression. If Mexico wants to send us fentanyl, then we should send Mexico our fentanyl bums. Ship them on down to Tijuana. Let them rip. All right. Uh, Dick Butter uh, lying again. Fish is fun without drugs. Oh, shut your mouth. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You're dick. Made of butter. Oh, that's totally my fault, not hers. Oh, yeah, because you, you weren't memorable enough. What else do I want to tell you guys? There's something else I want to tell you guys. You guys watched the Ricky um, podcast yesterday? going on with my studio i got a new mic can you tell how much i'm fidgeting with it i can't tell like not a new mic but a new mic arm i used to have this one that came in from over here now i got like this really fucking fancy one it comes in from over here i can't show you guys i can't fucking i don't know i don't understand it's, it's just You guys hear that sound right there when I is this what you call the gluck gluck 9000 when you do this oh uh, wait uh, where did the cord go or did we already talk about that it's, it's here it's here don't worry it's here yeah. just hidden in the shadows after we got off the show uh, Caleb tried to talk to me about that gray back there but I'm gonna frame the black and gray I'm gonna fill the, I'm gonna fill the whole room this i got boxes and boxes thinking about telling you guys a story that i that i definitely was not going to tell you before i was like definitely never tell this story but i think i'm ready to tell it i was thinking about it today in the shower when i saw the no plan b shirt is what made me think of it About about seven months ago, I don't know, how long have I been doing this podcast now? Is it two years or is it three years? But I get up every morning, basically, you guys know, I get up at 6 a.m. I uh, fool around for like a half hour in my house, drink coffee, walk around, open the blinds, let the dog out, feed the dog, look at my phone, try to catch up, start like doing the podcast in my head. Then at 6.30, I jump in the shower and then... Um, by 7 a.m., I make it into my office back here, and I start the podcast. The podcast goes from 7 till 
nine and then it's over. And then I, from here, I can hear my kids playing piano. That means their school's probably over. And then I grab them and I go out into the world with them. And I do that and I stay out in the world with them until about two. And then from like two to four, uh, we're at home. And then from four to seven, they're back at jujitsu and tennis and shit like that. Then, then they come home at seven. Um, and I usually eat dinner and just fool around in the house or work out with them in the garage or do whatever. And then they go to bed. And when they go to bed, I work for a couple hours uh, preparing for the podcast the next day. But I also prepare for the podcast during the day. So let's say if I'm driving, driving them somewhere, I'll be listening to podcasts of guests I'm going to have on or calling people and, like, trying to get information and shit like that. So, um, okay, fine. I won't tell this story. Never mind. Uh, Sevon, pull up the uh, f- Kyle Casper Bowers for about the 49ers. Sure, I'd love to. Let's go. Do I follow Kyle? I don't follow Kyle. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh... Oh, yeah. I think I played that. That's just a, that's just like a video clip of, yeah, yeah, I, I think I played that. I have that for one, one of my, that, no, come on. I'm going to follow, thank you, I'll follow, follow Kyle. Wow, he has 18,000 followers. Uh, does this uh, um, end up, story end up with you getting fingered? No. Fair question, though. So I I grow up, David. It's not funny. It's not funny. It's not. No, it's not funny. Me getting fingered is not funny. So about six or seven months ago, I'm trying to think of how I can tell this story. Oh, I'm doing a podcast, podcast. I podcast. I podcast. I, um... About six or seven months ago, eight months ago, I, I knew the whole time that, hey, this thing might not get off the ground and it might not be sustainable, right? And I live a fucking lavish lifestyle. I have a, a 2016 um, Toyota Sienna. I have a 2014 Toyota 4Runner. <laughs> I have credit cards. I can fill the tank up. I got, um, I got like, I got cool shit. My, I got, a, I own a TV set. I have Apple TV. I have computers. Um, I buy organic. You know, I mean, I ball. I live a fucking good life. Yeah, I eat cashews. Um, uh, I have a skate park near my house I drive to. When I fill my tank up, I fill it up all the way with gas. I don't just put like five bucks in. You know what I mean? I don't do a lot, but because because I have this all these awesome things in my life. I have like clean clothes. I always have soap to wash my clothes in. Um, I always have bars, nice bars of soap in the, in the shower. I mean, I live a fuck, I have a chocolate cock. I live a fucking good ass life. I have kids that love me. I have clean water. Um, my house is, my house is, um, like, you know, it doesn't leak. Um, my TV gets the UFC. I don't. I don't use premium gas anymore. I don't have um, Sirius XM. I, I eat a lot of macadamia nuts. Yeah. I mean, I fucking. I live such a good life. Now, I don't do things that a lot of other people do. Like, I would never stay at a hotel. That would just seem like a fucking waste of money. I would never like. I don't. I'm not. If I'm ever traveling or doing anything, it's because someone else is paying for it. Like, I don't do anything like to rock the boat. 
like I, I don't buy new clothes. I don't. I wouldn't like take my kids to Disneyland. I don't. I wouldn't take my kids like camping, like like and, and have to pay for a campsite. I don't do any. Like I'm at just at home, like protecting what semblance of steadiness I have. You know, being able to just have a, a nice steady life. I have a Colt Merton's trading card. I didn't pay for it. I got it for free, but I have it, and I like it. That's what I mean. I have nice things. Yeah, here's Merton's. I even have the brand new, which most of you probably don't have, the Alex Gazan trading card from Wad Zombie. I hope Wad Zombie's not mad at me for me going off last night. Anyway, but but with this lavish lifestyle, um, yeah, kind kind of. I didn't really pay for it. That's the thing, is what I'm saying. Like I don't do, I don't do, any, I don't, I don't. I just, I just ball in my own house. I just ball in my own like sphere. All, almost all the money I spend on is, but, but I do do uh, it. Uh, is on like shit for my kids, right? Driving my kids around, making sure the car has new tires. The, the twelve hundred dollars a month I spend on tennis lessons, shit like that, new skateboards. That's everything, right? But I live a fucking good-ass life. But, but, but I could tell with the way I was living this good-ass life, like buying avocados and shit, eating cantaloupe, buying UFC fights on Saturday nights, that it wasn't going to be sustainable. It just wasn't going to be sustainable. And for, uh, for like six months, uh, my wife was pulling money out of our savings to pay for our mortgage. Like we'd run out of uh, runway. This thing wasn't sustainable. I was like, fuck. So, and, and when that happens to someone like me, I start freezing. Like I, I, I will do even less. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll water the, I'll start, I just immediately start doing things. Like I'll start eating less. I'll do anything. When I go out to restaurants, I won't order food. I'll eat the scraps off of other people's food. Like if, I, if someone takes me out, even if they're paying, I just start freezing. I start like really, really becoming hyper aware of everything. So I'm not even going to get too many into details. So are you moving to Ohio where I'd be rich, right? No. So I get this note from YouTube saying – that they, they're demonetizing my account. This is like a month ago. I'm like, huh, I wonder what that's about. So I cruise over there and I look and it's because I haven't sent them, they don't have updated information on me that, that they supposedly had sent me emails for a shitload of times, right? By the way, take note of this. You fucking assholes who people who think like I'm trying not to respond to you, listen to this story very closely. People who are like, hey, you didn't text me back. You didn't call me back. You didn't answer my DM. Fuck off, dude. I mean, here we go. So, because I'm trying like my fucking hardest. I'm fucking trying. And I not only am I trying, I want to for selfish reasons to get back to everyone. I love it. I love you guys. I love partying with you guys. This whole thing's fun as shit. But I'm tripping. Anyway, so I, so I see my YouTube account's been demonetized, and I go over there. And while I'm filling out the, the, the form, sending him my driver's license, giving him an updated Social Security number, I, I look over, and I see this fucking huge number. I think it's a huge number of money. That, that's, I can't tell if it's my YouTube account has made it or if they've paid me that. 
And I'm like, fuck, this is weird. And um, I, because like I told you guys, all I do is do the podcast, go out with my kids all day, research my podcast, repeat. And I tell my wife, I'm like, hey, come over and look at my computer. Does it look like YouTube's going to pay us all that fucking money, that giant number in there? And she's like, yeah. Yeah, I agree, David. I always, I try to always, I always try to answer the phone when my mom calls. And what had happened was a year ago, YouTube, I guess a year ago, had stopped paying me. And I never noticed. Because I don't do any of that shit. I don't do any of the adult shit. My wife does all that shit. I mean, I do some adult shit. I pay the cable bill and shit like that, but I don't do any of like the real big boy stuff like the housing and the mortgages. And, and fucking I filled out my tax form and sent him a new picture of my driver's license, which I should really show you guys. It's ridiculous. I have a fucking beard like this. And a fucking giant chunk of money from all the donations you guys had given me over the last year came in and landed. And I told my wife, hey, can you go into my bank account and pull all that money back out and put it all back into our savings? And all, and it was a fucking, I was, it was an even swap for like whatever it was, eight months of mortgage my wife had been paying. I pay the internet bill too. I do that. I pay, K, I pay the internet, not, not cable, whatever the internet one is. I pay the internet bill. I'm trying to think what other bills I pay. I used to pay the car, but I paid that off. I pay all the bills, but just like the dipshit bills. I don't do like, not the shit like that keeps the roof over your head. I pay the electricity. Yeah. Brandon Waddell, I bet it was huge. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. It was fucking, it, 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 we broke even. All my fucking money problems went away like in fucking three seconds. Oh, I just felt my back get better just telling you guys the story. I was like, fuck, I can't tell anyone this story. I don't know why. But it's fucking crazy, dude. Just fucking, when I thought, I thought today, I'm like, hey, it's a fucking no plan B story. I just never had any plan B. I just put my head down, come in here. My wife believed in me. I don't fucking do drugs. I'm not a fucking alcoholic. I work out every day. I take care of my kids. I do my podcast. I try to research it. I try not to fuck around. I try to bring you the best stuff. I try to have people on that are going to push me and make me uncomfortable. Dude, it was a lot of fucking money. Just think, eight or nine months mortgage. I live in fucking California. I went from like, holy shit, I'm going to fucking eventually have to sell a house. which I need to fucking, like, fucking live the lavish lifestyle and drive the 2016 Toyota van around, right? You need all that money just to put gas in it and water for the avocado trees and all that. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, I do so fucking good. I do so fucking good. But I wanted to maintain it. And I was like, fuck, I'm not going to be able to maintain it. I'm going the wrong way. Yeah, how many figures? Anyway. It fucking, it, it happened. And, and it's like, like this, I can't tell if it's going to keep going this way, but it's like, it's been like the best two, two, I can't believe what's happened. It's been a two years of me just wondering. 
Kind of like I like I like I'm so like I have my head down so much in the no plan B phase that like I don't really wonder. But it but but it, it kind of the road the I didn't I didn't like hearing my wife say that she was like hey she would tell me before she she never talks to me about money and then all of a sudden she's like hey we pulled money out of this account to pay for the mortgage again we paid mortgage is fucking a lot here in California I got one of those I don't know what's I don't know what it's doing but I got one of those. I put like as much as I could when I went CrossFit. When I worked at CrossFit, they doubled or some shit everything you put into your 401k, and you could put a shitload in. And I put a shitload in. I don't know how much is in there to be honest with you, none at all. I give all of those envelopes that come from people like that to my mom and my wife. I don't. I don't look at any of that stuff. Anyway, uh, I feel like. This year was my biggest crop of fruit that I've ever had. Crazy. I'll take pictures and post them on my Instagram. Last night we had a tree branch break on one of our apple trees. And there were so many fucking apples that I got a dehydrator. I mean, my kids spent two hours slicing apples and dehydrating them last night. And I feel like when I planted the, I planted about, I planted probably 150 trees here in my yard. It's only a half acre. Um, 150 fruit trees, probably 50 of them have died from gophers and just whatnot. And when I planted all these trees, people thought I was crazy. My mom and my dad and my friends are like, what's the plan? What are you doing? It's too many trees. And like now, five years later, it's paying off because I have so much fucking fruit, right? I feel like this podcast is like that too. The real question now is Beaver getting paid. Fuck no. That's not the real fucking question. Oh, yeah, I just broke even. I get to stay in my house, and now I'm paying Beaver. Fuck no. Pay your taxes so Beaver can get his money. This is the first year I didn't see a lot of bees. Do you get a lot of bees? This is the first year I did not see a lot of bees. It's a little unsettling. I mean, I see bees. I saw a bee yesterday. I saw a dead bee yesterday. I gave someone a huge bag of apples uh, that came over to my house and they had a dead bee in the in their Ford Bronco. And 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 so many of my friends uh, took care of me, like people like Beaver, doing my show every morning. Fucking couldn't do it without them. I owe I owe those people a huge thank you. Yeah, you could borrow a dollar. No, no, I can't add. Uh, you should start beekeeping, Heidi says. No. Anyway, that's the story. So I'm at ground zero. I'm happy. Podcast is exploding. Viewership has doubled in the last three months. Viewership and listening, which is crazy. It's nuts. Uh, support from you guys, crazy. This crew, this 135 that are listening now, it's crazy how powerful you are. People make fun of it. Oh, your podcast is so small and cute. Dude, you guys are fucking not small and cute. You guys are potent and agile. I'm not being, am I being vulnerable? Jeez Louise, I like it when you're vulnerable with us, Sevy. Keep it up. Yeah, I know. That's the funny thing, right? Just all you need is 10 new subs a day if they're fucking savages like you are. It's nuts. Let's see. Let's see who's coming on. Oh, uh, um, I don't understand that text message. 
Uh, oh, no, no podcast tonight. Okay, so I'll keep making my building out my podcast studio tonight, and then tomorrow morning, Jason Cleveland, Rich Froning. That's cool, right? That'll be fun. Those that'll be a big show, all sorts of. And then uh, eleven a.m. Uh, Taylor and Jr. with uh, Shut Up and Scribble. That show is just kind of taken over. I think that I think that might be the most popular like show of that kind at that length. I know that uh, Max Al Hodges, uh, the training think tank, gets a lot of views, but their theirs are usually broken into pretty small clips. I'm really impressed with Jr. and Taylor. Um, I am not going to uh, Idaho. I thought I was going to Idaho for a month, but I'm not. Oh wow. Wow, some sort of flying beetle, right? Uh, someone just sent me a picture of a bug and said, do you know what this is? Some sort of flying beetle? Maybe I could check Google Images for them. You think, I, you think I've gotten too comfortable with you guys since I now text and shit when, I'm on, when the show is going? Sometimes I wonder that. I'm like, did I get too comfortable with these guys? Like, Hold on. This is an important friend. Not that you guys aren't important. Oh, shit. Okay, I'll do that later. Do you guys know about the Google app? You can go to Google, and there's a camera, and you can point it at anything and push and, and take a picture of it, and it'll tell you what it is, where you can buy it. You can point to a flag, a bug, just whatever. Lauren Lewis. Hi. Oh, are those your sons? You are a proud mama, huh? I love this podcast and Sevy's thought stories, trying to catch the lives, but back teaching high school full-time. Summer's over. Oh, are those... those? Oh, good. We need good good teachers. Google Lens. Is that what, is that what it's called? Uh, Sevy... Uh, from Slater, how is your new friendship with Craig Ritchie? You inviting him on? I don't think we're there yet. I realize I'm starting to realize the. I'm starting to realize the. potency of this podcast have you ever seen like a plant that's wilted in your yard and you give it water and then you come back like an hour later and it's completely vibrant and you're like it's like holy shit it's a completely different plant like literally it's like this i have this um brand new passion uh, banana passion fruit vine that's in a corner and the soil is really weird there. It doesn't hold water well at all. So if you go, if you don't water it every three days, the whole thing just droops. And I've realized the potency of this podcast is like watering something. It could, it can really breathe for some reason. I, I don't even know exactly why, but it really breathes life into things. 
it's it's like the peptides that um ca peptide cells it, it it's got like some sort of healing properties it can re um I don't know. Someone's gonna. You could be. You could start analyzing and be like, "Well, you really humanize people, or people get real on here, or it makes us uh, empathize with people." But for some reason, this podcast does something, and I just want to make sure that I'm using that wisely. Does that make sense? Sevon's dog. Her hip bone was surgically broken apart to repair hip dysplasia problem. I know that is fucking crazy. What uh. Hiller's uh, chicks going through crazy. I don't, I tried to like put myself in that position to see what I would do if I was her. I couldn't even fucking do it. I didn't want to do it. I did I'd rather like, I'd rather have a venereal disease and have to deal with that. Like I, I don't, I don't want anyone breaking my hip. Uh, Slater. I don't understand, but it sounded good. Thank you. I'm I'm beating around the bush. That's why it didn't make sense. I'm trying. I'm feigning some humility. All right. Uh, have a great day, everyone. Make it a day of drinking lots of water. Nothing else to drink besides water. Eat healthy. Push back on at least one bad decision. Try to catch yourself in a situation that you normally would have been mean to someone or get angry and be nice. Try to flip the script. You know what that means to flip the script? Just you can, it can be so absurd. Like your kid spills milk on the table and normally you'd be like, dude, what are you doing? I told you not to put your milk there. You can just look right now and be like, I love you. I love you. Oh, two brain survey. Thank you. You have to, if you're an affiliate owner, take the two brain survey. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Robbie Myers. Um, the Two Brain Survey is awesome. I, I, I'm so super fucking excited about it. These are the kind of things that have happened in the last two months. Every time this fucking guy, Chris Cooper, calls me, I call my mom and tell her about the conversation. It's fucking crazy. So this guy fucking calls me and he says, hey, you know our state of the industry report. I'm like, yeah, I fucking know it. It's fucking dope. I don't even own an affiliate and I love it. I keep it here near me here i'm gonna open another page and read you something from it uh, trends and opinions and analysis this is just in there while the data in the former sections is objective and quantifiable most of the data in section seven is qualitative it's based on opinions as such i share my take on the poll numbers so here he goes in here and he starts analyzing the information he's uh gotten so like some of the information he's gotten is forty thousand is the median cost to open a gym Eighty-eight thousand is the average cost to open a gym Oh, average versus median. And then he goes in to talk about all that. This thing is full of just all that stuff, and it's presented just yummy. Anyway, he calls me. He says, November 13th, the new state of the industry report is coming out, and he would like to uh, announce that on November 13th and talk about it on my podcast. Like, dude. Can you imagine how crazy the that compliment is? This is a worldwide survey. This is the the most... There's no second place for information regarding owning a small gym than what Chris Cooper and Two Brain puts together. This guy also, a week or two after that, said, oh, by the way, I saw you're doing the behind the scenes. Let me know if you need any financial help doing that. I'd love uh, uh, anyone who's producing the kind of content you put out to support the uh, affiliates. That's almost verbatim. 
And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what I can do for you yet. He's like, oh, it's okay. Just if you have some cost uh, accrue, uh, invoice me and we'll start working it. I mean, there's just like this trust there. It's fucking nuts. It's cool. No, no manager for this. Although, although Hiller was like, oh, kind of, uh, Sousa's kind of your agent. He's, he's kind of my attorney and kind of my friend and kind of my tax guy and kind of everything. So I don't, I don't know. I prefer just to call him the executive producer of the Sevon podcast. Anyway, uh, there will be a link. If you're a gym owner, please uh, respond. I don't know how long the survey is going to be open, but then your information will be aggregated, curated, and used in, in the 2024 version of this, which comes out in November. And um, um, it's gyms all around the world. I think all you have to do is be able to speak English. I think that is the, the, the survey is only in English. Uh, CK Kevin, I read the whole thing on Two Brains. Just interested in all the nerdy stuff, cool stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. So the PDF is on their website, right? If you don't have a hard copy, hard copy, hard cocky, hard coffee. All right, thank you. A handler, yeah. He's kind of my wife's more my handler. All right, love you guys. Great show, Paul Sotaroff. Uh, tomorrow, Jason Klepa, Rich Froning, tell a friend. Um, see you guys soon. Bye-bye.